Welcome to the Telling of Story podcast. I'm your host, Storyteller Jules, and along with my guests, it's my endeavour to explore the art and science of storytelling to attract, engage, and retain a business audience, and to unpack why it works for some and not for the many that try. In this episode, I have the pleasure of talking with Rowdy McLean. Listen in as he talks about what he thinks is the most important thing in storytelling. I think the most powerful thing, the most powerful thing of all in storytelling is the pause. Australia's 2019 Keynote Speaker of the Year, Rowdy has delivered over a thousand keynote presentations to over 700,000 people in 17 countries. A master storyteller, a genuine bloke and someone that people from all walks of life can relate to. Rowdy played professional sport, built a successful startup, turned around a failing company, founded five companies and mentors and works with leaders from the world's top organisations daily. Rowdy has also climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, kayaked in Antarctica, tracked gorillas in Rwanda, run marathons and hiked the Kokoda Track. The combination of business and personal challenges makes his presentations interesting and unique. A best-selling author and founder of the Leadership Institute Australia, Rowdy is the go-to speaker on how to shift mindsets, raise the bar, embrace change and crack the code for extraordinary future success. Rowdy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on, mate. Rowdy, take me back to where you grew up and what is it famous for? I grew up in a little tiny country town on the northern tablelands of New South Wales, a, a place called Gyra. Have you ever heard of it? I have not, actually. Gyra. No. <laughs> I'm not surprised. A little tiny place built on top of a hill, freezing cold, snows there in the winter, and uh, about 800 people live there. You know, it's the sort of place where you don't lock your car or lock your door, where everybody knows everybody else's business. But a, a great little community to grow up in. And it's famous for, famous for three things. It's famous for the, uh, the Gyra ghost, which uh, nobody has ever seen. It's uh, famous for the highest caravan park in Australia, which nobody stays in because it's too cold. But it's probably most famous for the most inspiring football team in the world. The Gyra football team is called... The mighty spuds. <laughs> when you run out of the paddock to do battle in the mud and the blood and the sweat and the tears, the emblem that sits over your heart is a potato of legs. It doesn't get any any more inspiring than that, that mate, I don't think. And I ended up as captain of that football team, which made me Mr. Potato Head. <laughs> and, uh, that was the start of my leadership journey, mate. Fabulous. And that was obviously the start of your sporting career as well? Yeah, it's one of those country towns where there's nothing to do. So you played uh, sport, that's all you did, you know. So I played tennis and I played golf and I played soccer and I played cricket and I played squash and I played rugby league. But rugby league was the sport that I was best at and it gave me the opportunity to to, uh, go and play football in Sydney with North Sydney and... uh, it uh, also, well, it didn't give me the opportunity to get a uh, scholarship to go to college, but I got a scholarship to go to college in Sydney at the same time. And, and uh, that's how the working life of Rowdy McLean started. 
Fabulous. And in your bio, Rowdy, you described as a master storyteller. What is a master storyteller and what makes you particularly good at it? Look, um, I think there's so much to storytelling. And uh, the reason that's in my bio is every time I work with a, with a company or with a, with a speakers bureau, um, the feedback is, oh, you know, Rowdy, the, the people loved your stories. They loved the story about this or they loved the story about that. And, and then I realised that all of my key content was anchored in stories. And so, you know, I, can, I, I just found that knack of conveying messages to people that were contained within a story. So, you know, sometimes there's a story about me, sometimes there's a story about something else. But being able to get your content across or your ideas across through a story, which I just did, by the way, by telling you about where I grew up, you know, it's just, it's my natural way to, to default into describing a circumstance or a situation. And, you know, I was pretty naturally good at it. You know, I was the school captain. I was the captain of the football team. I was a kid who did the award to the teacher at the end of the year or the presentation to the footy coach. And and so I, I didn't mind this idea of speaking and stuff and, and telling stories. I was the person who would uh, regale people with stories at parties and stuff. And it wasn't really until about, 2004 that I, I met a guy called Matt Church and, and he opened me to my eyes to the idea that there was much more depth to, to storytelling and the, 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 the very first thing I used to do tell a story about running a marathon and uh, and he said to me he said, you know that story is really really good but it'd be so much better if you started telling it on the left hand side of the stage and finished it on the right hand side of the stage and i've gone why and he's gone because people will will move through the journey with with you like they're running the marathon from left to right and i thought that is so crazy but the next time i had a speaking gig i tried it and i was amazed by the difference it made and then you know so then i that really got me thinking about telling stories and being better at telling those stories. And, and uh, so, you know, I, 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 I still to this day uh, try different things, different way, ways to make the story better or, or communicate it better, not necessarily the story better, but to communicate it and, and convey the sentiment behind the story better. It's interesting what you've just described there, just even the little nuance of moving across the stage. It's something I hadn't really thought about before. I mean, I've always thought about the the way you told a story, the language you used, you know, the pauses, the loud bits, the quiet bits, and all of those kinds of things when you're telling a story. But tell me a little bit about more about perhaps some of those nuances that, that also add to the story the telling of story because when you're on stage you know typically you've got a pretty flat stage and maybe a screen behind you how do you how do you do things that also make the story more interesting tell me a bit about that yeah well you know i think it's easier to tell a story on stage than it is over a podcast and it's uh, easier to tell a story over a podcast than it is in a book so uh, but i think some people forget the value of being able to tell a story from the stage. And so that idea of moving left to right started me thinking about the other ways that I could uh, use the stage. And so there's, uh, if, I'm, if I'm going to tell something 
somebody does something really, really important, like the the key 60 seconds of my keynote, I'll actually walk right to the front of the stage and have my toes hanging just over the edge, like, you know, almost stepping into the crowd. And, and the audience knows that whatever you're going to say when you're standing at that point, it's really, really important, you know. And, and, and then the ability to make yourself small and large, so, you know, being able to crouch down a little bit and, and then lift yourself up and make yourself tall and and all of those sorts of things make a massive difference to the way that you communicate a story. And be, you know, the other thing is being able to, I'm not a big fan of props on the stage, you know, but every now and again there, there is something that you can use that really helps anchor the story. Like uh, I remember working with a guy who, who was telling a story about, well, he was telling a story about, he was telling people about presenting and the art of presenting and one of the things he talked about was frozen hand gestures. And, you know, he would talk about it and you sort of get it, right? But then one day he did it and he had one of those snow cones, you know, with a you shake up with the snowman in it. And, it. and he put that in his hand. He said, so a frozen hand gesture is when you can hold one of these and the snow doesn't move. And it really just a great way of visually reinforcing the fact that the frozen hand gesture is is a solid, you know, thing, not a, like, when I was doing frozen hand gestures, I'd tend to, this was my frozen hand gesture, not that you can see it on podcast, but my hand would bounce up and down. It wasn't until I saw that prop added to it that I went, you know, if I'm going to make a point, that hand needs to be completely frozen, you know. And so little things like that can make a massive difference to the story that you're telling. Tell me a bit more about your storytelling journey, you know, to attract and retain an audience. You mentioned that you sort of met Matt back in 2014, I think you said. Um, what, how has that journey evolved? What made you decide to go from, you know, you seem to have run many businesses yourself and, and started and, and turned around businesses? What, where was that turning point and when did you realise that storytelling was a big part of how to get your message across? Look, uh I started the speaking journey like so many other speakers and, uh, you know, you're trying to work out where you fit and how your message fits and who your right audience is and, and the best way for you to, to be good at your art, you know, and and so you've chosen this art. And for me, I, I discovered that storytelling was, was my best way of being really good at speaking. And so once, once I, once I did, discovered that people the feedback people were giving me was that they love my stories I went I, I need to find a way to be better at those and you know something that you I, I think the most powerful thing the most powerful thing of all in storytelling is the pause and uh, you know I say that to people and some of the people that I mentor and coach and they don't believe me until they give it a go. But, you know, that, that, that if you've got an audience engaged, you have to have them engaged first. But once you've got an audience engaged, the place you pause is the place where they go, whatever comes out of his or her mouth next is something that I've got to really listen to. And not only that, but it conveys the fact that, that you're thinking about what you're going to say next, you know. We get so guilty, I think, of telling stories where we just done. 
You know, when in fact you should be relaxing to it, and and you know, for me, I every story I tell, I I can visualize in my head, and you know, I've done thousands of of keynotes now, so some of the stories I've told, I've told hundreds and hundreds of times but every single time i tell that story i visualize it in my head so what the audience is is watching or what they're hearing is me actually reliving that story in my head and i think that's one of the reasons that i'm really good at it because because they see the facial expressions that go with the memory you know like if you if you're thinking about a good time then the smart your your face conveys that and then, if you're thinking about a sad time, you, your face conveys that. But, but you're not you're not thinking about the facial expressions. You're you, because you're actually in the story at the time. And I think that's the thing that makes the biggest difference for me is people know that when I'm telling a story, I'm I'm actually in the story. I'm not I'm not the story's not a third party. Like there's the audience, there's the me, and there's the story out here. It's just me in the story, and people watching that unfold. I think the key to a, to a great story is being able to feel like you're standing there side by side with that person, right? So if if you're conveying it in such a way that I can feel your empathy, I can feel your pain, I can feel your joy, then I'm drawn into that, right? And so there's a, there's a huge power in in reliving and retelling that story in the way that you felt it. It doesn't matter if you've told it a, a hundred times. If you can, if I can feel that story as you're saying it, then I'm more inclined to be drawn into that. Absolutely spot on. And I can only imagine the the power of the pause would be hugely powerful, combined with the hanging your feet over the edge as well. So coming in really yeah. close, being really, you know, maybe even lowering your voice a little bit, having that pause, and telling that next thing would be. A really powerful piece in, inside any story, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. I think combining some of those things—the empathy, the way you speak, the speed, the quietness, the um, the position on stage—tell me a bit about other forms of storytelling that you might do outside of the stage. Do you do anything else other than stage work? Oh, look! I think uh, once a storyteller, always a storyteller. You know, and I mentor CEOs and business leaders uh, outside of speaking, and uh, and I work with big leadership teams. And I think all of that mentoring, training, coaching involves stories. You know, like you'll sit down with somebody and ask them about the challenges that they're facing, and and they'll tell you about a challenge and. And then you'll go, you know, I've had a similar experience and you, and you start to tell them the story of that experience, you know. And so I think I think it's, again, using something that you talked about, it's just a, a fantastic way of relating to people really, really well, you know, that that the, the share of a story of similar experience with a different result allows people to see that there's a different way forward it, but it all because you're because you start telling stories. It's almost like it's no longer a mentorship; it's a friendship, you know. And I think it makes a big difference if 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 you can see share pertinent personal stories with somebody that you're mentoring. It engages them far far greater than it would if it was just a purely um, commercial 
relationship. Does that make sense? Like it's just a transaction rather than than a, a, a couple of friends having, you know, for me, it, my mentors always say to me that it, it, when mentoring doesn't feel like mentoring to them, it feels like having a few beers at the pub with a mate. And that's how I want it to feel, you know. I want, to, I want, I want a leader to feel like he, he's rung up one of his mates and let's go and have a beer and we go and sit down and he goes, look, see something struggling with X and you have that conversation or, or I've got this opportunity and I don't know which way to go. And so that's the way that I want it to be. And, and the reason it can be that way is because of the storytelling. And the other place that I, uh, I, I've written two books. So I've written a book called Play a Bigger Game, which, my first, which was my first book. And then I wrote this book, Leadability, which was my second book. Now, this book was written in conjunction with the story of me climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. And and it's a leadership book, but not only does it like it's the leadership book. I wish I was given the day that I started in leadership. So it's got thirty mistakes that I made that no leader should ever make, you know. But it's also written. Every chapter is written in conjunction with the experience of climbing the mountain with this guide called Stephen Malio, and and uh, so it's got two elements to it. It's a bit like um, a bit like a fable, but actually not. So we've got the content and then we've got the story about the mountain. Because I was just so impressed with this uh, this guy, you know, who was climbing the world's highest freestanding mountain in the world for a living. And then his his approach to leadership and getting people to the top of the mountain. And so yeah, there's a story in that that book that lasts the whole 30 chapters as well. In your keynote, Rowdy, you talk about four things you're in control of. Yeah. Can you expand a little bit on those, and in particular the one around actions? So uh, so there's four things that all of us control, but most of us don't control. And uh, But if we did, the world would change completely, you know. And uh, so those first things are the first one is your attitude. And, and most people, when you ask them the, the question, are you responsible for, the, for your attitude, they will say, absolutely. But when you ask them, are they in complete control of their attitude at any given time, on any given day, under any given circumstances, very few people put their hand up for that. But when you get to the point in, in life where, you know, how you show up, is completely at your control. So you don't blame your customers, you don't blame your boss, you don't blame your partner, you don't blame your kids, the dog, the neighbours, the community. When you go, I'm completely responsible for how I show up and how I behave in the world, the game changes because you just, you do things you would never have done when when nobody else is to blame anymore. You you. You set yourself a set of benchmarks, a set of standards, and and you just, you know, you don't you don't take a lazy approach to life when you when you because I think I think that's the cop out for most people who are not in complete control of their attitude. If they've got somebody else to blame. You know, I'm, I'm allowed to be like this. It's okay for me to be like this because it's that person's or that circumstance fault. But when you get over that, when you go. I'm completely responsible. You just play differently and you play better, you know. And, and uh, you know, I, I tell a story about that that includes the death of my father. And uh, 
end. I'm not going to tell it now, but uh, it's it's a long story, but it's a powerful story about, you know, we had this disconnect with this man, um, alcoholic, divorced, hadn't seen him, been in contact with him for 17 years, and then we decided to show up uh, when he was at the last few days of his life, me and my little brother, and we had the four best days of our life because we 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 turned up in complete control of our attitude. Instead of carrying all the bad stuff into that experience, we carried just ourselves in our in our authentic selves, you know. And so it was just a magnificent experience. And even that, you know, I'm not going to tell the story, but even thinking about when I tell that story, one little nuance that I've changed when I tell that story is I used to start off by say to people, you know, I could tell you stories about attitude, how I became a professional footballer, how I became a successful business person, CEO, startup, all of those things. But the best story is the story I can tell you about the death of my dad. Changing that one line to a story I could tell you about the death of my father changed the, the way people embrace with the story. Because when you go, the death of my dad, people go, oh, it turns out okay because you use the word dad. But when you go, i tell you a story about the death of my father, they sort of lean forward a little bit because they go, oh, this, I wonder how this turns out, you know. And So just one word, and it took me two years to find that one word, you know. And, I, and uh, so it's just finding those little things that make a story better. So that's the first thing. Own your attitude under any circumstances. The next one is uh, make choices with purpose. And uh, Life is short. And one of my pet hates is saying to somebody, why did you do that? And they go, oh, I don't know. It just seemed like a good idea at the time, which is just ridiculous, right? You know, uh, you, if you're going to go places in this world, and, you know, if a little country bumpkin like me can, can achieve everything that I've achieved, anybody can achieve just about anything. You know? And one of the things is, is not, not accepting second best, not accepting the status quo, it's just making choices, even tiny choices to move forward, to make progress, to grow a little bit, to to find a way to make things better. And and instead of just, just accepting how things are, choosing how you want things to be. The uh, third one is execution. So execution is such a powerful tool, especially for leaders. It, and execution is doing what you say you're going to do the way you said you're going to do it, when you said you were going to do it, every single time. That builds massive trust and integrity, right? And and if, if once it becomes a habit, you just accelerate your progress so much because, because you never start out doing something and doing it half way or half good. You know, you go, if I'm going to execute on something, I'm going to do it with absolute integrity. And then what happens is over the course of a few months and then a few years, people start to go, geez, this guy or this girl, they just, they're so consistent with the way that they do things, that the way that they apply themselves or the way that they approach things. And, you know, you, that's how you get offered opportunities. That's how you get promotions. That's how you get, that's how you make progress. And then the last thing is the ability to stick the ability to stick at it longer than you think you need to, longer than your uh, parents think you need to, longer than your partner thinks you need to, longer than your boss thinks you need to, quite often longer than you think you need to. You know, most for most of us, success is just around the corner. And uh, 
we throw in the towel too early, you know. And I think we live in this cotton wool society where where we sort of learn to throw in the towel. That it's okay to give up. It's okay to pull the pin. And uh, but the, the people that are successful, the Oprah Winfrey's, the Richard Branson's, the Elon Musk, you know, the uh, I can't remember the name of that girl that just won the U.S. Open but at eighteen years of age. But they're the people who just keep going and. Uh, and stick at it long enough to make it a success. I really love that framework, it, particularly that what all, all four sections of those, but those last three in particular, when I talk to people about building a tribe and building an audience and attracting potentially new clients and, and actually attracting a, or creating a business around storytelling, those last three in particular, you know, the choices of how you show up, how you know what you say, who you say it to, um, followed by ex- actually executing on on that, and you know, doing the speaking gigs, writing the blogs, posting on social media, ringing people up, speaking, you know, in front of people. Whenever whenever you get those chances to actually do those and execute them and do them consistently, and that last one, they're sticking at it. I mean, I see so many people go, oh, yeah, I blogged for, you know, three days and it didn't work, so I moved on to social and then I did that for a week and, you know, that didn't work. All of these things, a lot of these things in in life in in general and particularly in that space there that I speak about consistently is you've got to do it for the long term. This is not a, you know, short-term decision. It's It's a lifelong decision. It's a choice. And if you stick at it for long enough, you will start to see those results. You know, it won't happen overnight, but it will happen kind of thing. And it's really about those other things, and including the attitude in which you, you know, show up and, and actually start to present and be seen is magnificent. So I really love that framework. So thank you for sharing that. And oh, You're welcome, mate. I might steal a little bit of it when I talk about it for, for people because it's, <laughs> it's, it's very good. You also, you wrote the book, Playing a Bigger Game, and that's pretty much been your life story as well. Tell me a bit about a bit about that. I don't know what happened to me, you know, it, growing up in Gaia, whether, whether it was the fact that it was a small country town and, and I wanted, I don't know, my brothers and sisters didn't want to get out of Gaia, but and I didn't want to get out of Gaia because I didn't like Gaia. I was just enthralled by the idea that there's a bigger world out there and, and, uh, so, you know, the move to Sydney was a pretty big thing for me. First person in my family to go to college, first person in in my school to move to Sydney. You know, you get to Sydney and you realise there's a bigger world than that and, you know, there's all of Australia and then you go, there's the whole of the South Pacific and then there's the, the, the world, you know. And, uh, but that, that was the beginning of me going, there are so many experiences to be had and you've... So I, I try to mark, I try to mark my uh, growth in age with with, uh, with different types of milestones. You know, like back when I was young, I used to have that. Uh, you know, you turn twenty one, and like every kid in Australia, you, you pretty much have a party of some description and drink way too much and wake up the next day with a hangover, and then you know you, you get to. 30 and you mark that milestone by going out to a restaurant and drinking way too much red wine and waking up the next day with a hangover. You get to 40 and you start, you've made a bit of money and so you go up to Hamilton Island and drink cocktails to three o'clock in the morning and wake up the next day with a 
hang on. Uh, so I decided for, for my 50th, I wasn't going to do that. And so uh, for my 50th, I climbed, I, the morning of my 50th birthday, I was standing at the peak of the world's highest freestanding mountain. And that, that's just um, a, a really short story about the way that I, I think about things. I, I look at the patterns that are unfolding in, in my life and go, which ones are stale and which ones need to change, you know? And so I'm, the reason I go and kayak in Antarctica is because you know, I've, I've been having boring holidays in the same place for the last 12, 15 years. And I go, I'm, I'm going to do something different. So if I'm going to do something different, let's do something remarkably different. And so you know, I went, went over to South America, made my way down to Ushuaia, hopped on a, an Irish, uh, Irish, <laughs> on a Russian icebreaker and, and went across to Antarctica. It was a magnificent experience. Um, you know, tracking gorillas in Rwanda was the same thing, um, walking the Kokoda track, running a marathon. I woke up one day, um, went down and got the Sunday paper and was sitting there having a cup, cup of coffee, reading the Sunday paper. And I turned the page and there's this story there about the fact that less than 1% of the entire population has ever run a full marathon. And uh, I thought, geez, I'd like to be in that group, you know. And I wasn't a runner or anything, but I thought, it, wouldn't that be a, a, a milestone, a, 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 an achievement to run a full marathon? So I decided I was going to run a full marathon no matter what, what it took. So I did all the training and everything turned up and uh, ran the marathon, thinking that, uh, you know, you run a marathon because you want the medal and the photo and the T-shirt. But my little boy met me at the halfway mark. He was four years old at the time, and he ran about 200 metres with me. It, it nearly killed him, but it was just the boost I needed, you know. And I finished the marathon, finished in three and a half hours, which was pretty good time. And uh, but I've got an experience with that little four-year-old boy that has lasted me a lifetime. Like he climbed Mount Kilimanjaro with me. Um, you know, we've become lifelong friends. So sometimes you go on these journeys of of trying something that's a little bit outside the box, thinking that this is the result you're going to get, and you get something completely different. And that's the beauty, I think, about the world is that you know. You get on a train and move to Sydney to go to college and play football and end up speaking to business leaders in New York 30 years later, you know. How does that happen? It's what a wonderful, wonderful world that we live in. You know? I think it comes back to some, you know, that, that a part of that framework, you know, it's your attitude and, and some of those decisions, you know, on purpose that you make throughout your life and these stories that you tell that you now tell as part of your your business is actually the experiences that you've had personally along your journey and like you say they don't often they you know often they switch and change and they evolve as you're telling the story but the experiences and what you get out of it is not what you expected and therefore those little nuances are the interesting parts of the story you know often it's the we, you know, the truck broke down on the way to uh, to trekking in Rwanda, looking for the the gorillas, is part of that story, which you didn't necessarily expect, but makes it so much more interesting. And it's, I think, it's those decisions to just do and give it a go, which which creates our lives, which creates the story of our lives, and which you know then becomes interesting when you go to tell those stories. Yeah, I think so. And I think something else you just mentioned is really important. There are stories within the stories. Like, 
you know, and I used to do this with a friend of mine where we would sit down and tell a story and then the person would ask questions around the story, right? And, and then you would find the story about the truck breaking down. They go, well, you didn't mention the truck breaking down. What happened when the truck broke down? So you tell the story about the truck breaking down. They go, that's such a good story, you know. And, and you hadn't even thought of it until you start to think about, you know, you know how did how did what happened on the icebreaker on the way to Antarctica, you know, or, or who, who were the characters that, that were there? Tell me more about the characters. What was the boat like? You know, how was the weather? Yeah, it's start, when you start to dive into it, you go, wow, there's so many stories in here. And uh, and I think the other thing is, I discovered that that uh, you don't have to tell stories exactly as they occurred. And by that, I mean, you've got to be authentic to the story. You can't change the story. But, you know, sometimes I've got a lot of sporting stories, obviously, growing up from a sporting background. And so sometimes you're talking to an audience of, of people who have no interest in sport whatsoever. And so you go, oh, there goes half my stories. But that's not actually the case. So, you know, I, I'd, I'd tell a story about um when I played football, there was a guy who got paid like five times more than anybody else. And uh, we're in we're in a final and the other team scored a try and uh, we were down by a couple of points with about two minutes to go. And this guy who's getting paid more, every, more than everybody else is telling us to do this, to do this. I want you've got to do this and you've got to do this. And one of the players turned around and said to me, well, you're getting paid the most. Why don't you do it? Right. So that's a, a good story in itself, simple story. And I've gone, well, pity I couldn't tell that story because it would be really good for this audience. But then all you need to do is go, I was in, I was in this experience once where, um, you know, we were struggling with getting the results that we wanted and the leader was shouting at us and shouting us to do this, to do that, to, to you know, and pushing us to, to do stuff when, in fact, the best thing he could have done is got out in front of us and did the stuff and we would have followed him. That's leadership responsibility. So you see how you take exactly the same story, take the sporting stuff out of it. It's still the same story, still authentic to the story. You just don't need to tell the rugby league part of it. There's a lot of lessons in that, and I think you're absolutely correct. And I love the the flow in which a story can evolve and change and, and you know, grabbing a certain nuance of, in, within a story and maybe focusing on on that part because it's in, contextually it's correct for the space that you're in. So if you're speaking to a certain crowd, then the story about the truck breaking down might be the m- more interesting part of the story, whereas if you're talking to a different crowd, you might be talking about sitting with the gorillas, right? So um, choosing the part of the story or emphasising the part of the story that makes sense. So I think being contextually aware of what's right at that moment could be the difference between, you know, a great presentation and, a, and an average one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I have, I don't know whether you've heard of this before, but I have actually have a story matrix. So I have an Excel spreadsheet and down the left-hand side I have all of the stories that, that I tell, you know, 100 different stories. And then along the right-hand axis, I have all of the places that that story would be suitable. Is it a good customer service story? Is it a good leadership story? Is it a good collaboration story? Is it a good trust story? You know, And so, you know, you've got these endless amount of places. But then you go, 
you're able to go, you know, you just can't tell that story about trust. It just doesn't work there. So, you, you know, because you, you, when you're building a presentation, you, see, you know, I, I like to make it as fast as possible. And, and so st- instead of wondering whether a story will fit or not, I, I just look at that matrix and go, well, here are all the stories I can tell about trust, you know. I think what you've described there is really interesting too in the sense that I've I've heard speakers uh, speaker presentations and and maybe I've been lucky enough to to hear them more than once and where it falls down a little bit is if for the second time I hear exactly the same presentation um, and the same stories and it feels the second time in particular it feels very canned and 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 almost inauthentic whereas what you've just described there is you've got a, a set of stories that you can tell but I'm pretty sure if I if I you know watched two three four different uh, you know presentations of yours, yes, they might have some some uh, some similarities across them, but the nuances within the stories or the emphasis parts of the stories or the pieces of the story might change in in every presentation. Is that how you sort of treat that? Yeah, look, I don't think I've ever done two presentations the same, and yet. Somebody who's who's watching them might go, they were they were pretty similar. But every time I do a presentation, I, I'm always thinking about you know that one word, that that one that you know can I can I replace a story with a different story? Can I can I change the story like changing the word dad to father so that it so that it it fits or it's better? You know the best time to do that is in the first 10 minutes after you've told you've, you've had the presentation or you've told the story because it right then you you can feel it i can feel it in in my body i can feel that something's clunky or it didn't resonate you know and and so i i want to i i've got a little notebook with all of my presentations in it and at the bottom i've got for every single presentation that i've ever, ever done i've got three three things that out of that presentation I could do differently. And you know, sometimes it's taking a complete story and scrapping it and replacing it. Sometimes it's taking one word and replacing it. Sometimes it's thinking about where I am on the stage. Sometimes it's it's you know, knowing to pause. You know, I should have paused after, paused before I made that point. Because, you know, I, I love the pause. It's... Uh, Sometimes you can roll into a really important point in the story too quickly. And the, and the thing about a pause is it just allows you to stop, allows the audience to go, and then allows you to, to deliver that key point in a, a little microcosm all of its own. And so when when somebody when somebody goes back to the office and and the CEO says, oh, how was the conference? They go, it was fantastic. And they go, oh, you know, what did you see? What did you hear? And they go, I heard this guy called Rowdy and he told this story and they will use that little microcosm point that you made in between pauses. And, uh, you know, that's how your point gets conveyed outside of the conference room or outside of the podcast. Rowdy, I could talk to you about this stuff for three, four, five days, I think. Um, I've totally enjoyed it. I do have a final question, however, which I do like to ask all of my guests. If someone paid you 
a million dollars to pick your brain, but you only had five minutes to share some of your wisdom, what would you say to them? Oh, to pick my brains about life, about business? You choose. <laughs> Look, uh, that's, a, that's a fantastic question. Here's what, here's what I would say. You are capable of far more than you imagine. You know, we live in, like right now, things in the world are a little bit crazy, but, you know, back in 1911, people said the world's a little bit crazy and a whole heap of other times during history, people have said the world's a little bit crazy. You are the latest, greatest model of human being that has ever existed. Your ancestors survived fire and famine and plague and predators and became better and better and better so that you could take your place in this world and uh, you're the best model yet and you owe it to the next generation to make the best of what's in front of you it's uh, the world is your oyster and you know if a little country bumpkin from Gaia can lean into it and, and uh, have such wonderful experiences and, and uh, such tremendous growth I'm sure you can too you know you are unbelievably amazing and capable of so much Rowdy, fabulous advice. I've enjoyed our chat immensely. If people want to find out a little bit more about you, where can they find you online? Yeah, the best place to go is to www.rowdymclean.com. So R-O-W-D-Y-M-C-L-E-A-N.com. And you can sign up to my newsletter, find my books, find my speaking presentations, find my blog, everything's there. Rowdy, thank you so much. Thanks, Joe. It's been fantastic. I enjoyed having a chat with Rowdy. There's no wonder he's considered a master of storytelling. There's so much to unpack there. I could have gone on for hours with him. It was such a pleasure and such a joy to have him on. A couple of things that really stood out to me. One was his four, four rules to life. Own your attitude. Make choices with purpose, execute, and stick at it. What a great four set. Just listening to those four just makes you think and stop and want to just get out and do stuff. And the other one that I really liked was that if you're going to do something different, why not make it remarkably different? Change it up a little. If it's getting a little bit stale, mix it up, go to the opposite end, and that's where some of the best stories lie. Much love, chat soon.